0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies.
1: It's been my observation over the past few years that we're seeing more and more medical device Products find their way into home use type settings and not just home use, but uh, products that are used outside of a healthcare facility, products that are used by more and more lay people, not just healthcare professionals. And there's some challenges with that with respect to usability and risk and safety and efficacy and all those sorts of things. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast where Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I talk about usability and risk for medical devices used outside of a healthcare environment used by folks other than healthcare professionals. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder, at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And it seems like there's a, uh, a growing, I don't know, theme, trend. I guess we'll, we'll uncover if, how much this is growing. But there is this area of devices that are being used more and more in a, a home setting, And so I thought today we could talk a little bit about usability and risk for medical devices in the home. And joining me is familiar voice on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. So do you think this is a a theme or, or a growing trend of devices being used more and more in the home environment? I guess that might be a good place to start. I think it's a great place to start, John. And without a doubt, there is a growing trend of more and more devices being
0: used in a quote-unquote home environment. But maybe one place to start this conversation, John, is what exactly do we mean by home environment? In other words, does somebody have to be using the device literally in the building that they sleep in order to call it a home environment? It seems to me that there's a lot of other, let's call them non traditional environments that medical devices are, are being used so maybe using the phrase home environment is limited thinking to begin with maybe we should just think of it as a non-professional healthcare environment in other words an environment that would not include hospitals or doctor's offices or uh, right. places like that because you know what about medical devices that are intended to be used outside or, you know, someplace other than where literally somebody sleeps. What do you what do you mm-hmm. think of,
1: of no, that place to start a job? I think that's good. I mean, I think home use can be a misnomer, so to speak. So I think that's good to clarify that. Because to your point, I mean, there are... You know, devices could be used in the home, they could be used at a park, they could be used out in the field, all sorts of different things that, technically speaking, would be you know outside the confines of a healthcare facility. Maybe that's a better way to, to describe it.
0: And believe it or not, John, I have uh, two devices that I've, that I'm working on for outer space. These are devices. Space. Are being, uh, yes, these are these are devices I'm, I'm working on. NASA. So, you know, that's awesome. What, what what environment do we do? We include those kinds of devices. You know, we're not even talking about Earth, right? So.
1: Uh, Mike, I think Elon Musk might be calling you here soon to to see if. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so th- certainly when you, when you talk about, well, I, I guess environment in aside, I mean, really the goal here is we want safe devices, right? So are there some challenges with usage of devices in space or in the home or outside of a healthcare facility that become more challenging from a safety perspective? Well,
0: first of all, from a pragmatic perspective, John, maybe we should limit our discussion to devices <laughs> to be intended to be used here on Earth. OK, all right. All because right. I think that most of our audience, at least for the immediate future, is not going to be working on devices for outer space. OK, but you're right. There are significant challenges when it comes to safety or risk and usability for devices that are intended to be used in a home environment, whatever that means. But also, equally important, we have to take into account the user that's going to be using our medical devices. Because in the past, as you know, John, you know most medical devices were used by quote-unquote trained medical professional, somebody that went to dental school or medical school or nursing school and is supposed to know how to use our device already. And notice I'm parsing my words carefully, John. You know, I'm saying supposed to know because, you know, from somebody who used to teach medical school back in the day, I'm constantly reminded of the old joke, what do you call the person that graduates last in their class in, in, in medical school? You call them a doctor. You call them doctor, right. Um, but when we talk about devices that are intended to be used by the lay public, in other words, a non-medically trained professional, that introduces a whole other you know, sort of can of worms here to, to this whole discussion. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. I would agree. And I can remember, it's not too long ago, I was working on a a device and we wanted, well, actually it was going to be used and it was going to be prescribed by a physician, but the patient was going to take this device in their home environment with them. And it creates a lot of challenges because, you know, from the controls that you put in place on your device, you know, you don't want users going into a menu and, Start to alter their the device settings per se and that sort of thing, but you have, you have to factor in a lot of other things i mean in an in, like in a hospital environment, so to speak, I mean there is quote control by the you know the healthcare provider using that product, and there's also quote control with respect to that environment in which that product is being used. But you get into, outside that facility, I mean, everything that you can imagine is possible as far as the user is concerned, as far as the environment's is concerned, and it really complicates things a great deal. It
0: certainly does, John, and a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, I've said in in some of our previous discussions that when it comes to devices that are to be used outside of the traditional healthcare environment, whether that's the home or or wherever, and similarly for devices that are intended to be used by non-medically trained professionals, in other words, by the lay public, by the patient themselves, things like safety and risk are even more important than devices that are used in a hospital by a physician or a surgeon or somebody like that. And usability is even more important than for devices that are used by a surgeon or a a nurse or somebody like that. Um, And one of the common questions that I get, John, is when it comes to testing, for example, usability or human factors testing, how do we take into account how many different subgroups we might have to use? to represent our intended user population. In other words, if you have a, let's call it a traditional device that's used in a hospital environment, a surgical device, for example, then your intended user is pretty limited. It's probably only a surgeon or maybe in some cases only a particular kind of surgeon that would use that particular device. So from a usability perspective, it's pretty easy. You, you probably only have to do one group of, of, of users to ensure the usability of your product. However, when you have a device that's intended to be used by the lay public, quote-unquote regular people, you might actually have to have a number of different subgroups in order to adequately test the usability of your device because obviously there's a growing number of older people in our population today that are using our devices along with age unfortunately john comes a lot of comorbidities they might have other diseases that they're struggling with that might lead to a limitation in cognitive function it might lead to a, a limitation in physical capabilities in other words decreased mobility decreased dexterity and so on there might even be psychological effects that they're struggling with you know we're all living in this uh, in this COVID environment now that has a lot of stress and anxiety and so on. So what kind of testing or how many different subgroups of people do we test these devices in? As you're probably familiar with, John, and we've talked about this a little bit before, when it comes to human factors in several of the FDA guidances, they recommend for the summative testing, 15 users per subgroup And don't even get me started on where that 15 comes from, because that's a topic of a different discussion. Nobody has the the answer to that.
1: Every time I've heard that come (laughs) up, it's like, I don't know, it just came from somewhere.
0: (laughs) But the better question is, how many different subgroups of people do we need to test our devices in? People, as I said, that have different levels of uh, cognitive function or physical function and and so on. I'll share with you a a real quick recent example, John, and I would love to hear your Thoughts on this. One of my current customers, they're working on a device right now that's intended to be used by patients with, let's say, let's just say limited physical mobility. Okay. And I said, Where are you when it comes to usability testing? And they said, Oh, well, we've already done that. And I said, Okay, great. Tell me how you did it. Well, we had a couple of the engineers that designed this particular device test it out to make sure that they could use it. And I said, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, do those engineers have the same physical mobility limitations as our intended patient population? And they said, no, they're perfectly, you know, perfectly mobile people. And I said, well, the first question that FDA is going to ask is, how do you know that the result that you got from that, quote, testing? And I'm putting that word testing in air quotes, John. How do you know that that would be representative of people who, who this device is actually intended for? And they said, gee, we don't know. So, you know, so, so, so the point that I'm trying to make, John, is how do we know how many different kinds of subgroups and how do we know, you know, even within the subgroup, how do we make sure that the people that we test are reflective of our actual intended users that are going to be using this device? It seems to me, John, that those are very important and very fundamental yeah. questions. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and it's complicated, you know, to your point. I mean, whether or not the number 15 is (laughs) appropriate or or whatever that's irrelevant, the bigger picture or the bigger context here is I have to factor in all the different types of user groups. And and if I have a device that that could be used by the normal healthy person and, and a geriatric patient or somebody that's suffering from some other comorbidity, then those are all factors that have to influence my my summative and my usability and I, and i think that that certainly can complicate things a big way i mean and, and you're i appreciate you sharing your story but you know the engineer who designed the product is the probably or definitely not probably definitely the least qualified person to do usability on that particular device so uh, yeah, it's, and I have, you know, uh, maybe another example or something that uh, food for thought to think about. It's not necessarily a medical device or it's per se, but, you know, hopefully it can illustrate some of the challenges. And I love my parents. So p- please hear that first and foremost, but they, uh, <laughs> Be careful, John. no, it's okay. Uh, but they, you know, you know, they're, they're a little bit older, you know. They're they're retired. They're they're living in their golden years. They're traveling. They're doing all sorts of fun, exciting things. But the other day, my my parents called me and they're like, "Hey, we got an email from our cell phone provider that said we're approaching our data limits on our phone. And what do we do? And how do we change that? And blah blah. Yeah, I, I, we called customer support uh, for the company and we didn't get any answers. So I had to like walk them through how they could set their data limits and. How they could check that on their phone and this sort of thing, and and yeah, that's just a cell phone, you know. And and so, I think a lot of times, we're um, when you think about sort of how technology is evolving so quickly, a, a lot of these quote home use products are definitely embracing the this technology wave. And you know, it's to a younger person, technology might be ubiquitous, I mean, they may not have ever appreciated or known what life is like without a smartphone or without the internet and these sorts of things. But that doesn't necessarily represent the entire user population. So, you know, these are all things that can complicate uh, home use products in a big, big way.
0: I would agree, John, and I would take it one step further. One of the things that is sometimes frustrating for me, and I don't think is something that we do well as an industry when we're talking about devices intended to be used outside of the traditional healthcare environment is how we mitigate those risks and potential harms once we've identified them. In other words, as you very well know, John, one of the things that ISO says, and it's actually one of the things that I agree with them, is that when it comes to risk mitigation, labeling should not be your primary way of mitigating risk. In other words, we should do everything that we can via design and training and, you know, other methods to mitigate risk, mitigating of risk by labeling should be, quite frankly, your mitigation of last resort. But when it comes to devices like we're talking about here, you know, devices that are to, intended to be used in the home or devices that, that are intended to be used by people who are non-medically trained professionals, I think that many companies rely too heavily on risk mitigation by labeling and even risk mitigation by training, because in many of those cases, there's absolutely no way to ensure that they even pay attention or read your labeling or go through your training. Right. And by the way, in my opinion, the reason why, the justification why the ISO does not recommend mitigating risk by labeling as a primary risk mitigation measure, and I'm sure they would never say this publicly, but this is the exact reason, is it's a simple acknowledgement that most people never read that stuff, right? So we should do all that we can to mitigate risk in, in other ways. And as I said, I think this is particularly important and particularly challenging when you're dealing with devices to be used outside of a traditional healthcare environment by people who have not graduated from medical school or dental school or, or something like that. Would you agree, John?
1: hundred percent. I mean, again, to illustrate a little bit with a non-medical device example, I recently sold a house and you know, of course, with the house, people buy the house, they were getting the washer and dryer, they were getting the dishwasher, they were getting the stove and the refrigerator. And in the process of packing my stuff up, I like I opened one of the drawers of my kitchen that had all these user manuals from all of those pieces of equipment. (laughs) And I, I never cracked the cover on any of those things, you know. And I think it's really from a device perspective. I mean, think about the scenario in which the user, the layperson is using your product, you know, they may or may not have that manual. And even if they do, they you know, what if they're you know, out on a drive and the manual is in that drawer in their kitchen at their house and something happens and they have to go consult that manual to figure it out? That's not pragmatic. That's not realistic. That's not factoring in true usability of the product. I think this is the challenge for a medical device professional is to make your device, design your device in such a way that it's as intuitive to your user population as possible without having to go read a manual or consult a label or something of that nature.
0: I couldn't agree with you more, John. In fact, let me take it a step further. I kind of joke, if you go to Walmart, for example, and buy a toaster, how many people are going to read the manual for the toaster, right? Probably not many. As a matter of fact, I often say, and keep in mind, John, this is coming from somebody who has a PhD in biomedical engineering. If I have to read the manual for any product, then some engineer did not do their job.
1: Yeah. You know, to
0: me, I hear people use the phrase intelligent devices. Uh, Well, what the heck does that mean? To me, an intelligent device is something that. A a user does not have to read any instructions or manual or training. They start to use the device. And if they're using the device improperly or whatever, then the device should correct itself in some way, either prompt the user or it shouldn't be, you know, uh, be, be physically designed so that it cannot be used that way or whatever. To me, that is not just an intelligent device, but more importantly for our audience, John, that is intelligent design. And so... You know, we're raising the bar quite a bit there, but uh, but I think that's clearly you know the direction that we want to go.
1: For sure, absolutely. And I think one of the other related to this topic, one of the other themes that I'm observing is the blending of direct to consumer type devices and regulated products, and in some products, there's very much a gray area between regulated versus not regulated and you know, you and I have talked about general wellness products in the past, but what are your thoughts about this convergence of, of consumer products uh, with respect to regulated devices?
0: Well, you know, it's a great question, John, and FDA just a couple of months ago in July put out a guidance on this, and maybe this can be the topic of one of our future discussions because I see this as a trend for the future as well. And like most guidances, virtually everything in this particular guidance to me is common sense. As a matter of fact, I'm getting to the point where I'm going to recommend saying to the FDA that we shouldn't call these guidance documents, we should call them common sense documents. And (laughs) as an aside, I think it's kind of unfortunate that FDA has to spend any of their resources, you know, putting, you know, telling people what we should already know anyway. But that said, you know, back to your question, John, it is an important point when you have products that have called them blended functions in other words some functions within the same product within the same device may be regulated medical devices whereas other functions in the same device might be a consumer product when it comes to risk how do we separate those things, do those two things out can you even separate them them out when it comes to usability testing how do we separate the two can we separate the two. So these are great questions, John, and I'm, and I'm very happy to dig into them because because like I said, I do think that this is another trend that we're going to be seeing more and more for the future, but maybe that would be best for a topic of a, of a future discussion.
1: Yeah, for sure. But I think one thought that comes to my mind on that particular topic, you know, products that might be in that gray zone, prudent engineering, to, to use a Mike Drew's phrase, still applies. Uh, whether or not it's a quote regulated medical device or not, I, I sh- still should be factoring in good prudent engineering and good design practices and I should be thinking about usability regardless of, of how it's classified or viewed from a regulatory body. you know I think that's really a really key point for, for product developers out there.
0: Yeah, I agree, John. And if we want to dig just a tiny bit, you know, deeper, one or two scoop, you know, uh, shovel scoops uh, deeper into this whole, sure, happy do to it. do so. The, the, one one of the the takeaways of that guidance that I just referred to is it's a strategy that I use with combination products all the time, and that is decouple the technologies and consider them individually first, and then put them all together and consider the the entire system. So in this particular case, if you have a device that let's say one portion of the device is a regulated medical device and another portion of the device is not whether you want to call it a wellness device or a consumer product that's just a matter of semantics the first thing to do is to decouple those two technologies so in other words look at risk and usability of the regulated medical device look at risk and usability of the consumer product now fda makes it very clear that they're not concerned about risk and usability of the consumer product portion of your device, unless it has an impact on the regulated portion of the device. But I'll get to that in a second. Whether FDA is concerned about risk and usability of the consumer portion product, uh, consumer product portion of the device, I don't really care. I think that the manufacturer, the, the, uh, the developer should be definitely concerned about that. So step one, decouple the technologies. In other words, consider risk and usability of the regulated device and of the um, consumer product separately. And then step two, put them all together again and consider the risk and usability of the entire system. And it may very well be, and we can talk about specific examples of this in a different time, John, but it may very well be that there are a certain number of risks in the regulated device portion of the product alone. However, when we couple that, when we combine that, if you will, with the consumer product, that level, that that number of risks might be increased. In other words, there might be new risks associated with the regulated version of the device when it's used with whatever the consumer product is that are not present if we were to use just the regulated product alone. So, again, keeping the, the logic, because I think that's what's most important here, John, the logic, very simple. Decouple the technologies, just like we do in combination products, and consider each of the components individually. That's step one. And then step two, put the entire thing together and consider the entire system. That's the best way that I know of to cover your you-know-what, so to speak. In other words, to make sure that you haven't missed any, any possibilities. Does that make sense, John?
1: Totally makes sense, and it's really good practical advice for those out there who might be in this particular space. I think it's just it's just really sound, solid advice as as an approach. So, Mike, you know, as we uh, start to wrap up today's conversation, any um, food for thought or final thoughts or additional tips and pointers that you think are important on this topic of usability and risk for medical device and environments outside of a a controlled healthcare facility, outside of a controlled user population such as surgeons, physicians, nurses, etc. Any other tips and pointers you want to share?
0: Yeah, just a couple real
1: quick, just to kind of wrap up our discussion today, John. First of all, as
0: as we've talked about today, there are a number of, shall we say, unique challenges when we develop medical devices intended to be used outside of the traditional healthcare environment like a hospital and when they're intended to be used by people other than trained medical professionals by you know john smith and mary jane doe you know main street usa there are a number of differences we've talked about some of them certainly not all of all of them but on the other hand there are a heck of a lot of similarities and regardless of what kind of medical device you're developing whether you're developing something to be used by a brain surgeon or you're developing something to be used by your parents in their home. We need to consider the users. In other words, we need to consider who exactly uh, is this device intended to be used by and to keep that in mind when we do our risk mitigations and when we do our usability testing. We also need to consider the intended environment where that device is going to be used, whether it's in a neurosurgery, sweet, you know, it's by a brain surgeon or whether it's in your, your parents' home. I think if we just, you know, try to emphasize not just the differences, but the similarities, there's really not a lot new here to me. It's just uh, a little bit different. And the last thing that I would just mention, John, there's an adage that I learned recently that says the more likely you are to need the technology, the less likely you are to be savvy with it. Let me read that one more time. The, the more likely you are to need a technology, the less likely you are to be savvy with it. This is something that we really need to keep in mind when we're designing devices that are intended to be used by non-medical professionals, i.e. the lay public, especially by people, as we've talked about before, John, who have uh, physical or mobility or dexterity challenges, but especially Cognitive challenges, you know, like you, John. I also, you know, am facing challenges with, with uh, you know, aging parents. I have to be careful because sometimes my parents do listen to our yeah. discussions. So, uh, but you know, it, they might not be able to use our device in the same way that a non-cognitively challenged or non-physically challenged might uh, person might be able to use it. And so it comes back to that scenario that I shared with you, John, uh, a few minutes ago, which is not a hypothetical scenario. This particular company who was developing a device to be used in a, in a population of people with, with certain kinds of, uh, of physical or, or mobility limitations, they tested that device by their engineers. And, okay, let, let's forget about the fact that they, they tested it in their engineers, but they tested it in people who did not have those physical or mobility limitations. So what the heck, and we've talked about this before, John, what the heck is the point of doing any testing, whether it's usability testing or something else, if the people that we use, the users are not reflective of the of the population of people who are actually going to use our device? So there's just a couple of final thoughts that yeah. I thought I would share with our audience, John. What am I missing? What do you think are the most important takeaways here?
1: Well, some things to factor in is if my advice to folks is if you have, a product that you envision or anticipate or uh, have an interest in being used outside of a healthcare facilities by users other than healthcare professionals is do your homework uh, and start that as soon as possible. And I'll use one example from from my past um, to illustrate. So I was developing a device and one of the potential environments that we were anticipating or, or thinking about was in in the field basically for you know ambulatory and EMTs and, and paramedics, and uh, we got some some questions that from very late in our process, uh, let's just say way too late in the process, or, or later than we should have anyway. So I learned the lesson. But once we submitted a five ten k to to FDA, they asked us questions about hey, have you considered? you know, the interference, electromagnetic interference. Have you considered this? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if you're using an ambulatory, are you aware of this type of equipment and this thing and that thing? And we basically had to to change our, our mind on our indications for use and, and the use environment. We had to remove the, the ambulatory use case of for our device. So, you know because there's a lot of things that factors testing you know considerations that that certainly come into play once you get out the outside those four walls of that healthcare facility. So do your homework, try to understand as much as you possibly can about the use environment, about the user population because that will inform what you do, what you need to do from a design and development standpoint what you need to do from a testing standpoint, what you need to do to to have confidence that your product is as safe and ideally as effective as it can possibly be. So
0: could not well, agree more, John. Those are very sage words to end our discussion today.
1: All right. Awesome. Well Mike, thank you again so much. Uh, I always enjoy these conversations and and folks, thank you for being loyal listeners of the Global Medical Device Podcast. You know, maybe before the end of the year, I think we're approaching 200 episodes, which is crazy. Mike, I remember it didn't seem like it was that long ago that we did our first one, and, and it didn't seem like it was that long ago we did our 100th one. So thank you for, <laughs> for, for uh, all of your contributions to the Global Medical Device Podcast.
0: Well, you're yeah. welcome, John. I enjoy our conversations as well, and I look forward to another, I hate to say, hit <laughs> the next hundred or more. possibly. <laughs> <We continue. Awesome. laughs>
1: Folks, the uh, last thing I'll leave you with, of course, Greenlight Guru is here to help. If you'd like to learn more about the only medical device quality management system in the world today, then you need to go to www.greenlight.guru. Yes, that's right. It's designed specifically for you as a medical device professional, and it's been designed by actual medical device experts. So go check it out, www.greenlight.guru. Within the platform, we have workflows to help you manage all of your design and development, all of your risk management activities, uh, maintain solid foundational document and records management practices, as well as change management, and all of those post-market quality events all in one system, so www.greenlight.guru. And again, as always, thank you so much. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.